Hey there, and welcome to the podcast for Wednesday, March the 3rd. Coming up, it has been 100 consecutive days and counting for the closure of non-essential retailers in both Toronto and Peel, we'll discuss. Plus, low interest rates driving record housing sales as the average Toronto house price for the first time ever tops $1 million. Plus, we'll cover the latest COVID headlines with vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. All coming up right now on the pod. As of yesterday, it's been 100 days of lockdown for non-essential retailers in both Toronto and Peel region. And for more on this, let's welcome back to the show Deanne Brisebois with the Retail Council of Canada. She joins us here on Global News Radio. Deanne, good afternoon. Hi, Jeff. Nice to uh, talk to you again. Likewise. Okay, it's less than a week before the latest deadline for the lockdown expires. Do you have any idea as to when retailers in Toronto and Peel might be able to reopen? Uh, That's the million-dollar question. However, if uh, we read the tea leaves, certainly a lot of the mayors in Peel have indicated that they believe they can reopen and should reopen on March 8th, which is the date that had been mentioned previously by the Premier. And so we are certainly hoping that uh, that will happen. And again, we have been advocating for very strict capacity guidelines, but we think uh, that it's time. And I I suspect that for Peel, uh, they've seen and they've realized that by being in lockdown, what consumers are doing in their region is getting into cars and going into other regions. So that's not helping. It's not keeping people safe. As for Toronto, it's a question mark. We are having discussions with the mayor and the city, and we believe that uh, there is enough proof to show that we can reopen safely and that, in fact, it will be better not just for businesses but for the health and well-being of people who've been stuck at home for a very long time. Yeah, have you had any indication at all from Mayor Tory? You mentioned that uh, you know you've kind of taken some cues and some signals from the uh, mayors in Peel region, but has Mayor Tory given any indication to you or the Retail Council of Canada whether or not uh, reopening is going to happen next week? No, in fact, uh, that's what's so frustrating, not for us as much as for retailers who need more than 24 hours to be able to call employees back and make sure that their stores are safe for both employees and customers. So uh, that's the reason why we're having conversations this week before the uh, cabinet meeting on Friday to hopefully get some good news and some signs because our obviously we're getting lots of calls from our, our small, mid, and large non-essential retailers who are just at her with them. Yeah, how frustrating is this right now, even to have to wait till Friday and the latest cabinet meeting? I mean, when is the public announcement going to be made? When are retailers going to be given a heads up? Uh, how much notice do they need? How much notice do they deserve, Do you? Well, they certainly deserve more than 24 or 48 hours because as you can appreciate, if you're a small retailer, you have to reach out to your employees and, and, you know, give them their job back, so to speak. If you're a mid-size, you could be looking at 50 to 100 employees, which means letters have to go out, and then they have to prepare because they've got things that they have to do at home if they have children, for example. So they have to make alternate plans. So that certainly takes more than 24 and 48 hours. So we are certainly hoping that at the latest, 
we will get a clear signal on Friday. And hopefully the signal is that they will support our recommendation of opening with strict capacity guidelines. Yeah. Do you know what government and health officials, what they're waiting on or waiting for, what sort of numbers or metrics they're looking at that they're not in possession now that they might be Friday that's going to make uh, the path forward a little clearer for them? I, I think generally they're just looking at overall cases and if there are increases. And obviously we've seen uh, in the last little while, thank God, the numbers go down. There is, you know, to to uh, to be fair, there is a huge concern around the variant. But as we've demonstrated, these uh, issues of cases or hotspots, as they call them, have occurred more often in distribution centers, in workplaces like meat uh, producers or, or processors, I should say, and certainly not in retail environments. And that's the message we're, uh, we're sharing with the mayor. And we think that, in fact, it is wiser and safer if we reopen Toronto at strict capacity. And we've said that 25% would be acceptable. I think the, the challenge here is we're not sure we're truly dealing with science or with current data, uh, but obviously we will soldier on because certainly our businesses and our consumers need it. I was about to ask you what exactly is the proposal to government? So it's a quarter capacity, 25% capacity to uh, start, and uh, hopefully, fingers crossed for retailers, that will be maybe sometime next week. Uh, is there other things in that proposal in terms of PPE, uh, that, that sort of thing for employees, and what uh, customers are expected to uh, you know, have, uh, face masks, et cetera? Uh, Jeff, as you, as you know, I mean, the retailers stepped up very quickly. And not only did they put this, the health and safety measures like PPE and social distancing, signage, training for employees, face covering masks, they've, done, they've gone beyond that. And so retailers are prepared, and we have also made a commitment that we would continue to support all retailers, repeat that message of what the health and safety protocols are, provide support for training. Certainly, I can tell you in speaking to our independent owners as well as our chains, they are ready. They've got everything in place. They just need, you know, a positive message and a sign sooner versus later that they can finally reopen. Yeah, Deanne, just finally, today's day 101, and certainly we are all supportive of uh, public health. Uh, we want public health for us all, but just how desperate are retailers uh, right now? 100 consecutive days and more counting of being shut and being closed, just how desperate are they to reopen? Well, we, we just did a survey of those retailers most affected in uh, in Ontario, so specifically Toronto and Peel. And I can tell you, Jeff, if you are a small retailer, this is the nail in the coffin. 80% of them do not believe if the lockdown continues in Toronto and Peel, they do not believe that they will survive to see the second quarter. And so it is, these are dire circumstances for them. For mid-size, uh, it's similar. They're carrying more debt than they ever have. They're still carrying costs as they keep, you know, they have to still respect leases. They still have employees on staff. Even with all the different federal programs, they have increased their debt load by well over 15% in the last month and a half. So 
These businesses are very transactional cash businesses. They can't survive. So this is a critical time now. And put another way, I mean, 100 consecutive days, days, sorry, and counting shut is one thing, but that's basically a quarter of the year, a quarter of your sales year that your doors have been shut. Well, in fact, Jeff, it's not just a quarter. It's even more if you consider that during that 100 days, it was the holiday season. And for a lot of our small to mid-sized merchants and specialty retailers, the holiday season represents that, you know, six weeks, six to eight weeks usually represents 30 to 40 percent of their entire volume for the year. Uh, that's the reason why they call it Black Friday. You get out of the red, you start making money, you have more traffic, more purchases. So it is, in fact, worse than any other 100-day consecutive day because of the fact that it fell during such an important buying time for them. All right. We all stand by and wait for some sort of signal or announcement from the government. In the meantime, Deanne Brisebois, Retail Council of Canada. Deanne, appreciate the time as always. Thanks so much. Thank you. Cross your fingers. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. Some interesting housing numbers released for the city of Toronto. The housing market on fire for the month of February. Here with the details is Phil Soper, CEO of Royal LePage. He joins us here now on Global News Radio. Phil, good afternoon. Uh, great to be back on, Jeff. All right. Break it down for us, if you could, just at how big are these numbers for the month of February? The most stunning number isn't the price number. Yes, we eased over a million dollars, but we've been close to that for a number of years. The most stunning number is that sales volume, the number of homes trading hands in the GTA, is up 52% year over year. That's a massive climb because February of 2020 was a reasonable month. It wasn't a slow month. So what is uh, driving this? Why have we seen such a spike in uh, February of this year? There's been a series of things that have created what I call the COVID catalyst in, in, in property, in residential real estate. People have looked at their living situation and said, you know, we need something different if we're going to be working from home. Uh, young people saw an opening and uh, investors that owned rental properties in particularly in the city of Toronto saw customers disappear, foreign students, uh, Airbnb and such. And so they started selling their rental properties to young people and the cycle started. Uh, We're just starting to see the early edge of call it detached homeowners who are looking to upgrade their living situation, start to list and get into the market. So this isn't over uh, by a long stage. All right. Well, as you mentioned, uh, the volume, the amount of houses uh, selling is pretty incredible, but also that price, too. For the first time officially, Toronto, a house price now tops, the uh, average house price now tops $1 million dollars. Is that a bit of a, I don't know, psychological thing, do you think at all, Phil? It's kind of to me like when gas goes over a dollar, right? right. <laughs> now we've right. got home prices, the average home price, over a million dollars in Toronto. It's certainly, it, it's certainly a headline-grabbing statistic. The truth is, though, our, in a city as old and varied as ours, uh, every property is different, and people will still see entry-level housing, particularly in the 905, uh, well below that number. 
and and absolutely stunning property prices at the high end. You know, we're approaching ten million dollars sales uh, on big luxury estates. So so housing is one of those things where, yeah, it's interesting to know that the average home price is now over a million. But what does it mean for me? Yeah, and what does it mean for homeowners? Is there a risk here? Because a lot of this is uh, fueled, a lot of people believe, by low interest rates, that money is as cheap as it's uh, ever been. And is there a fear that people are going to get in over their heads, perhaps, uh, Phil, and a year or two down the road, who knows where interest rates will be and your mortgage uh, renews? It's a good question, you know, and, and, and a fair question. I am not concerned, and neither are policymakers like the Governor of Bank of Canada. I'll tell you why. We have probably the lowest mortgage default rate in the world. It's less than one quarter of 1%. And it was incredibly well managed uh, in recent years. We introduced the mortgage stress test back in 2018. Some of my colleagues in the real estate industry said, oh, you know, that's going to put too much of a damper on the uh, the market. But in fact, what it did was it provided a buffer uh, so that people taking mortgages at these ultra-low uh, pandemic-level rates had to prove that they could um, accommodate a mortgage that much, much higher. The gap is quite large now uh, between the actual retail rate they're buying mortgages at and what they had to prove they could uh, afford one. And remember, people are coming back to work. Uh, the economy is recovering. We had much stronger economy in the fourth quarter. It grew at an annualized rate of almost 10%, which is, if it's not a record, it's it's near a record for uh, a quarter in, in Canadian economic expansion. So I believe we have the capacity. The biggest concern would be that there's overshooting and the market uh, cools right off in the second half. But then we have the renewed demand from uh, temporary Canadians, like the nearly a million foreign students that arrive, and from new Canadians, the uh, projected 400,000 new Canadians a year that arrive. Uh, So I think our biggest challenge will continue to be housing supply and that the economy can weather the increase in home prices. So you expect this to continue throughout the year, Phil? Because it's one thing, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're the expert here on real estate. I mean, February being up and up, uh, you know, sizably is one thing, because February traditionally, I would think, is a slower month for real estate uh, sales. But uh, what about June, July, August? Are we expecting records there, do you think? I think we will continue to see records through the year. Now, this is a bit of a contrarian view, and it's it's not held by some of the real estate associations. I believe that as the year progresses, as vaccination rates rise, and as infection rates fall, we'll actually see a more balanced market than we have right now. I believe, even though it is based on imperfect data right now, that we, we, are, we are skewed to buyers versus sellers in terms of their comfort to enter the market. I believe many people who would be offering their homes for sale are sheltering at home and saying, I'm waiting for this thing to be over before, before I put my home up for sale. So you've got a lot of young people, a lot of first-time home buyers, and it's, it's made it worse than it will be. So I'm actually anticipating uh, less of this 
great imbalance in favor of sale, sellers as the year progresses and as the pandemic's uh, impact lessens. All right, Phil, appreciate the expertise as always. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. My pleasure, Jeff. Stay well. Phil Soper is the CEO of Royal LePage. Okay, a lot of confusion this week over vaccines. Here to help sort it all out is vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel joins us now on Global News Radio. Dr. Gorfinkel, good afternoon. Uh, first off, I want to ask, ask you about uh, AstraZeneca because the first shipments are due to arrive today. Now, we were talking about this in the program yesterday that Alberta will apparently not give AstraZeneca to those over 65. Health Canada says it's safe for all adults. Uh, do you think AstraZeneca should it be given to seniors, Dr. Gorfinkel? Personally, I think it should be given to everybody right now. However, there's mixed messaging. We hear from NACI, after it's been approved, not to use this in individuals over 65. And their rationale was simply that there wasn't enough data to support that. Now, if we take a look at what's happening in Europe, they don't agree. And in fact, France has since reversed its decision We see the same thing happening in the UK. It looks like Germany is about to do that as well because it's science and science changes. And what we know is that the study done in the UK and in Scotland showed a 94% reduction after one dose, four weeks after one dose in hospitalizations. And we also know that no one, and I can actually say that, no one in any of the trials died died of COVID after getting even one dose of any of these vaccines. So we are on the brink of a very historic event because we're about to get millions of doses. We're not going to have a choice. The best vaccine ultimately is the vaccine a person has access to. Having said that, though, obviously it's limited supply right now. So does this make sense that uh, maybe keep the AstraZeneca for those in the lower age demographic and then those 65 plus maybe use Pfizer or Moderna? Well, for now, we are following the NACI guidelines, but I suspect NACI is going to change its mind because it is science. They're going to look at the data that's out there, including the data that came out of Scotland, out of the UK. So the AstraZeneca trial involved 24,000 people. Fantastic, right? But take a look at how many millions are being involved in real world data. So we're talking Scotland. In Scotland, heck, they gave 450,000 doses of the AstraZeneca And they saw that after a single dose, the hospitalization rate went down 94%. That's massive. So as it happened, this data came out at a very similar time that NACI was looking at it. So I'm not sure they had access to the data at the time. But the fact of the matter is we have excellent real-world data that shows it's hugely effective in reducing hospitalizations and deaths. What's missing here is, is not that are we reducing that. We know we're going to reduce it, and that cuts across all age groups. What's missing is how long will the vaccine actually last? How long will the immunity last? And does it, in fact, reduce transmission of disease? So we have to wait to see if this is true. One of the things in Scotland is that 80% of those cases were the UK variant. And understand, that is not the case here in Canada just yet. Now, in Ontario, that UK variant, that B117 variant, is on a sharp rise. And right now, we're sitting at about 25% of the positive cases coming back as B117. And those larger Scottish trials, they were 80%. 80% of the cases were B117. 
So maybe that was part of the rationale. Maybe they said, well, we still have a lot of that original variant going on. But that's my own personal speculation. It's not clear to me why else they would have said that, and I suspect we're going to see a change in their mind very shortly. All right. In the meantime, uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry in B.C. is defending the government's decision there to delay the second dose of vaccines by as many as 16 weeks, saying that that's based on science. Uh, Your take on this, Dr. Gorfinkel, should governments ignore the manufacturer's recommendations in an attempt to get more needles in arms? I hate to say this, but I think I really believe that Pfizer and Moderna are sticking to their guns because of the CYA rule. Cover your, if you know what I mean, medical legally. (laughs) I think that's what's happening. The data is super strong to say, yes, we can give it. We can give it later. So BC, it's for all Health Canada approved vaccines. They say, wait 16 weeks between doses. Quebec was first in line. They said, heck, work for Pfizer. We're waiting 13 weeks. Ontario, we're still sick up to six weeks. So remember, the recommendation for Pfizer is three weeks. Ontario is saying, okay, fine, we'll give it at six weeks. But I think that's going to change, too, because what matters is getting it into more arms. That, for sure, is what makes the biggest difference. Because the data that's coming out on whether you look at deaths, hospitalizations, or severe disease, Every single vaccine in our current armamentarium, and that includes AstraZeneca, is hugely effective, even after a single dose. So do I think it makes sense to wait? I do. It makes a lot of sense. People, my patients are calling me every day. When do I get the shot? People are biting at the bit. I personally have yet to be vaccinated. What does that tell you? We have to make the most of the limited vaccine supply we have and early. Okay, so do you expect, sorry to interrupt, but do you expect other provinces and us here in Ontario to follow BC's lead then? Yes, I do. I think that that's probably what's going to happen. It would help if we had clear guidelines from NACI to dictate this, but for at this point, you know, really it's up to every single province and territory to decide, are they even going to follow NACI's guidelines? The way it worked and why there's confusion around, first, Health Canada approves it, and that's what we saw. Health Canada approved the AstraZeneca. Then NACI comes in and makes its decisions. Okay, what are we going to do? They get into the weeds of it, and NACI said on Monday... AstraZeneca should not be used in those over 65. Now, I know for a fact that many infectious disease specialists, epidemiologists, and experts totally disagree with us. But that said, it sends a mixed message if the provinces decide to do something that NACI has recommended. So generally speaking, the provinces will follow NACI guidelines when it comes to these vaccines. But, you know, where we're going to go from there, I'm excited that the pharmacies are starting to give it. You yeah, know, so I was going to ask Alberta. you about that. And sorry, I got less than a minute here. But starting March 15th, we hear that uh, over 300 Montreal area pharmacies are going to start administering vaccines. And this is something, again, you'd like to see maybe in this province right across the country. You can't see me, but I got a big smile on my face. <laughs> These are historic changing events. These mark the end of the pandemic, potentially. Alberta's already been at it. You recognize Alberta pharmacies have been giving vaccines and Calgary, Edmonton, and Red Deer. Montreal, the epicenter of Quebec's pandemic, they're going to be starting a couple Mondays from now, I guess on March the 15th. And Ontario, they are biting at the bit to get started to give vaccines. They, the setup is there. They're just waiting to hear. I think they're having a meeting about it today. When will it start? I think a lot will depend on how many doses we can get. 
but pharmacies are in an excellent position to vaccinate large numbers of people and rapidly. Much better than family doctors because so many of us are yet to be vaccinated. So how can we bring people in en masse, especially with that Pfizer vaccine? Rubber, that's got that special storage requirements. It only can last mm-hmm. in my regular refrigerator temperature for up to five days. All right. Got to leave it there. Dr. Gorfinkel, appreciate the time. As always, thanks so much. Many thanks, Jeffrey. It's always a pleasure. Vaccine researcher Dr. Iris Gorfinkel. Okay, earlier today, Alec Manassian found guilty of 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder in connection with the 2018 van attack. Here's Global News' Brianna Carnegie with more on the verdict. It was the best I could hope for. I think it was a a fair decision. 70-year-old Catherine Riddell was emotional after the judge's ruling. She doesn't remember the day of the van attack when she broke several bones and suffered internal injuries, but she says she experiences the trauma now. He took lives and he didn't care and you know what, you just have to be accountable for what you do, and he's going to have to be. Justice Ann Malloy rejected defense claims that Manassian should be found not criminally responsible for his actions because he is autistic. She says the 28-year-old chose to commit the attack because it was what he really wanted to do. Malloy also refused to give the killer further notoriety and only referred to him as John Doe in her verdict. Nick D'Amico, whose sister Anne Marie was killed in the attack, hopes that Malloy sets a precedent for future mass killing cases. And if there's one thing that we can take away from today, it's that. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. And joining us now, 640 Toronto legal expert Joseph Newberger is on the line and joins us here on Global News Radio. Joe, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Okay, break this down for us, if you could. Why did the Justice and Malloy find Manassian criminally responsible? Well, um, the argument by the defense uh, didn't really have any grounding in forensic evidence of the psychiatrists or psychologists, and in law, it was not a strong argument at all. So really what they argued was autism spectrum disorder does constitute a a disorder under the mental uh, health uh, case law within criminal law, and and that was accurate. But what they were trying to say was that because he lacked empathy, um, and uh, understood what the impact would be for the victims and their families. He was not able to rationally make decisions and therefore was not capable of knowing that it was uh, morally wrong. And the test to determine if somebody uh, is not capable of understanding what they're doing is legally and morally wrong uh, speaks to a, a capacity to decide rationally whether the act is right or wrong and therefore make a choice. What the argument of the defense was that by lacking empathy, they were not able to make a rational choice. And that is not a strong argument in any way. Uh, There was bountiful evidence from a well-known forensic psychiatrist and forensic psychologist that said that that's not correct um, and that he most likely did have the ability to uh, have empathy. But regardless, it does not meet the test uh, for Uh, not criminally responsible. And in law, it doesn't as well, because just even at its highest, Justice Molloy indicates that if somebody lacks empathy, it doesn't mean that they don't know or are incapable of making the choice of it right or wrong. So this decision was a clear one, which I thought from the get-go, it was Mr. Manassian's only argument that he could make. And uh, Her Honor made a very uh, detailed, reasoned 
uh, an excellent decision in this case. And very interesting, the uh, justice, what stood out to me in the decision was uh, she went as far as to say that Manassian was not only legally but morally at uh, fault uh, here. He morally knew what he did uh, was wrong, which uh, just underscores the point you were making. You're absolutely right, and she's absolutely right. He was very clear in his four-hour interview that this was something that he wanted to do, that he felt that he had accomplished a mission, that he was, yes, incited by the incel um, uh, movement on the Internet, but he, he planned this. He deliberately went out to kill women, to create mass carnage, and uh, he, when asked, he would do it again. And he literally said he felt that he had accomplished a mission. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what he was doing was legally wrong, and he knew it was morally wrong. This was a morally reprehensible, repugnant, disgusting uh, act uh, that was directed at women, and uh, she got it right on the nose. All right. Is this decision, is it precedent-setting in any way, Joe? Uh, I think it's also uh, particularly interesting and of note that Autism Canada has spoken out on this decision, issuing a statement saying that they uh, appreciate that uh, ASD was not a part of not criminally uh, responsible, uh, uh, that finding. Yeah, I'll say two things. One, I think when Her Honor was bold to refer to Uh, the accused asked Mr. Doe what she wanted to do is in these mass killing cases is to rob them of the notoriety that they so much seek. So that I think is is precedent setting and we haven't seen that before. And God forbid if there are other mass killing cases, I think that will set some precedent. With respect to Autism Canada, well, you know, I get how they were offended because people who have autism can be very high functioning uh, and to bring into this type of a horrific case the specter of autism playing some factor in him committing this offense uh, may be you know, quite repugnant to them. But it's no different than if people suffer from schizophrenia or other mental disorders, because there may be people who suffer from schizophrenia who are exceptionally high-functioning and, uh, and do very well in our community, and they're empathetic and wonderful people. But sometimes there is a disorder to a level that causes disorganization and an inability to appreciate what somebody's doing. So I don't think it sets any type of precedent. But autism spectrum disorder in and of itself is not the typical disease uh, or mental disorder that you would think would be involved in uh, an NCR case. So I think from that perspective, that gives some uh, solace to uh, spe- um to the organization and may serve as some precedent in the future because it, it really doesn't affect the ability of somebody to carry out their conduct unless it's coupled up with some other mental disorder. There has to be something more than just autism spectrum disorder. Okay, I want to go back to your first point, if I could, there. It's interesting, you're right, that the justice only referred to him as John Doe and said that he was seeking media attention. So that is somewhat rare for a justice to uh, point that out? Yeah, that that's very rare. I, I can't remember that happening in Canadian law. And of course, fortunately, we don't have too many mass killing cases in Canada. I mean, unfortunately, Toronto experienced two in in short order, the Danforth case and and this uh, van attack. But um, it is precedent setting. And I think it sends a very clear message that um, should something like this, God forbid, occur again, and there's a trial, the idea is to rob uh, the person of that notoriety that they seek, because in, in some of these cases, what they're seeking is notoriety. This individual indicated in his statement uh, to police that he clearly um, wanted to, that he clearly uh, idolized other serial killers. And that was something that, um, you know, he was robbed of, at least by this decision, by Justice Malloy.
Mm-hmm. Kind of brings back, obviously, the debate between accountability versus notoriety. And is this something that uh, folks like myself, uh, the media, should we be taking a note of this from the justice, do you think, Joe? No, I mean, it's it's important also that, I mean, you have a different job and, and, and you may not refer to him as much by name, but there is accountability here and there's denunciation of this individual's conduct. So I think you know, not not overemphasizing the individual's name, and it's going to be you know widely reported today and probably tomorrow, and then you know not so much as we go forward. But you know, referring to the individual as uh, as Mr. Doe or John Doe, I think is appropriate in the media, and and focusing on the other aspects, which are you know the victims and their families, and now how they're moving on and how they feel about uh, what's occurred um, as a result of this verdict. All right, 10 counts of murder, that's the verdict, uh, guilty on 10 counts of murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. What sort of punishment, what sort of sentence do you think we're looking at? Well, it's definitely life imprisonment. So it's automatic life imprisonment uh, for conviction of first-degree murder. Some people may be you know, thinking, will he get multiple uh, stacked on uh, life sentences? And it's not fitting within the regime uh, that was in place. So if there's a previous conviction for first-degree murder, Parole and eligibility can be extended uh, up to 50 years, um, and so you can have you know two life sentences. But but really, it, it doesn't make a difference because this individual is going to receive a life sentence. It's 25 years before they can apply for parole um, because this is one transaction. Um, but there is you know no snowball's chance uh, in hell that he is ever going to get parole. It's very clear that this is uh, one of the most notorious and heinous crimes in Canadian history. And there will be no amount of rehabilitation this individual uh, could try and attempt that's ever going to get him parole. This will be a life sentence until he dies. Do you expect an appeal at all? Is there a basis for one here, Joe? I don't see any. I've been reading the, uh, the judgment um, of, with interest because I, I do work in um, some of the mental health cases in, in criminal law. So it's an excellent decision. She's absolutely right. I see no margin of error whatsoever. It's ironclad. Uh, if they appeal, it, it, it won't go anywhere. And uh, this is a solid decision, so the verdicts will stick. All right. Our legal analyst, Joseph Newberger. Joe, appreciate the time and the expertise as always. Thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Take care.